Awesome. Well, good morning. Welcome to Nona Church. As Colin said, my name is Andrew. I serve here as the spiritual formation director. And in case you didn't know, Thanksgiving is just around the corner. Uh, yesterday, I already started testing out some new pie recipes. So I hope that you as well are getting ready for the feast that is coming. So this week and next week, we are going to be focused on this concept of thankful. And we will be in Psalm 16 learning about what thankfulness is and how we can enjoy it, how we can practice it in our lives. And so we're going to begin our time by hearing from God as he speaks to us in his word in Psalm 16. So in these words from David, would you hear the voice of the one who created you, of the God who is our king and our refuge? This is what Psalm 16 says. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would bring your word to your people through your servant this morning. Holy Spirit, would you open up our ears to hear you speaking? Would you open up our hearts to receive what you have for us? And God, would you quicken our hands and our feet to obey you and to respond to you this morning? I ask all of this in the name of Jesus. All God's people say, amen. You know, Thanksgiving has changed since when I was a kid. You know, back in the day, Thursday was Thanksgiving Day. And Friday was, you know, the day for shopping, Black Friday. You know, back in the day, Black Friday was crazy. It was the Wild West. People who had eaten too much turkey, gotten too little sleep, and stood in way too long lines starting at like 3 a.m. would viciously speed walk, if not all out, fight each other to grab a discounted TV off the rack. Now, I'm not saying that Black Friday back in the day was healthy, but I am saying that I miss when Black Friday was just on Friday. Like, Black Friday, you can do that deal online on Thursday. The stores will open up on Thursday, and really, Black Friday is taking over the entire month of November. Just a few weeks ago, at the beginning of this month, I drove up to a local gas station, and printed on the pump was this advertisement, Black Friday deals starting November 5th. That's 20 days before Thanksgiving. The worst part of it was the tagline, which read, Every day is Black Friday. What is wrong with us? Our relationship culturally and individually to Thanksgiving and to Black Friday, I think it reveals something troubling about us. 
on Thanksgiving, why, why would we replace a thankful heart for a shopping cart? Why is it so hard for us to set aside just one day to be satisfied with life as it is instead of trying and buying to improve and upgrade our situation? What would it look like to be thankful? Not just on Thanksgiving, but in life in general. As we dig this morning into the first six verses of Psalm 16, we're going to unpack this big idea together. If you're taking notes, this is a great place to start. A thankful heart chooses contentment instead of consumption. A thankful heart chooses contentment instead of consumption. We're going to look at the three elements of this big idea, contentment, consumption, and a thankful heart as they appear in these first six verses of Psalm 16. So let's begin at the beginning with contentment. Verses 1 and 2 say this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now right off the bat, David tells us that something is not right in his life. He's crying out to God here, asking God to protect him, to let him endure and survive whatever it is that he's facing in this moment. And it's really important that we don't just pass over verse 1, because verse 2 has some really positive vibes, but verse 1 is important. Before David declares that God is good, he tells us, he admits that his life situation is bad. David does not downplay or diminish his difficulties to God or even to himself. He doesn't pretend that he isn't suffering, that he isn't worried or broken to try and keep up some sort of spiritual appearance. David also doesn't respond to his difficulties by turning away from God. He's not too ashamed of his struggle. He's not uh, too angry about his situation to run away from God. Instead, David leans into God as he leans into his suffering. As suffering seems to draw close to him and hem him in, David draws close to God. And maybe you showed up this morning and you can relate to David in verse 1. Maybe you're ashamed or angry or anxious or overwhelmed about what your life has for you today or in this season. And if that's you right now, or if that's where you've been before, you know how hard it is to do what David is doing here. You know that it is a courageous, a vulnerable, a sometimes seemingly impossible choice to come near to God when we're hurting, when we're confused, when we're struggling, when we're broken. And so how does David do this? What enables him to courageously and vulnerably come to God with what's gone wrong in his life. It's because of what David believes and says to God in verse 2. He says, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. What David says here in verse 2 is at the heart of contentment. In the first part, David says, you are my Lord. Colin highlighted this word Lord for us Last week, and in true contentment, it requires recognizing and living under God's lordship. What does that mean? It means that we need to believe that God is Lord, that He has the authority, that's the right, to do what He wants, 
that God has the control, that's the ability to do what he wants, and that he has the presence to do what he wants everywhere and at all times. Functionally, believing that God is Lord means living like you're not. It means submitting our right and ability to do what we want to God's greater right and greater ability to do what he knows is best. And according to David here, our contentment, it is contingent upon us living under God's lordship. As Americans, that is a tough pill to swallow. Now, I say this, and I believe this, that God's lordship is so crucial and essential to our contentment as a person who likes being or at least feeling in control. I love making plans and then seeing them work out. I love problem solving. I enjoy hard work. But when I go to bed at night, my planning, problem solving, and hard work aren't very helpful. You see, that drive in me to get things done, to bring order out of chaos that like helps me be really efficient at work, uh, it is the same thing that keeps my mind running. It's the same thing that makes me wonder, what could I have done better today? Where did I miss the mark today? What did I leave undone today? What, is, what am I going to have to figure out and face and solve tomorrow? And it is exhausting you see, there is freedom in not being the Lord of your own life. There is peace in knowing that your life is not your own, but it's kept, it's directed, it's watched over by your heavenly Father. There's rest in trusting that God will keep his promise to work all things out for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. There's comfort in relying on the reality that when your life is out of control, you don't have to be in control because God is Lord. In the second part of verse 2, David says, I have no good apart from you. David's not saying here that nothing in his life is good except God. What he's telling us is that God alone is ultimately good. Like God is good with a capital G and everything else is just a lowercase g version of good. He's telling us that true contentment can't come from our circumstances, but from God alone. Uh, there's this great book by the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in this book, Burroughs illustrates the insufficiency of contentment based on our circumstances. Uh, Burroughs says that the contentment which comes from external things, from the things around us, that kind of contentment is like clothes warmed by a fire on a cold morning, which for us Floridians means about like what, 60, 65 degrees? I'm going to get my heavy winter coat out. You know, clothes that are warmed by a fire on a frigid Florida morning, those fire-warmed clothes will bring temporary warmth to the sickly person who puts them on. But the heat of those clothes quickly vanishes in the cold. So they must be warmed by the fire again and again and again because they don't stay hot. 
In contrast, the contentment that comes from the soul satisfied by God's goodness is like clothes kept warm by the natural heat of a healthy person's body. So that no matter the weather, no matter how cold it is, those clothes stay warm. Seeking contentment in anything, person, or pursuit that we can gain or achieve will bring us momentary warmth. It will bring us fleeting satisfaction in the moment. But there is nothing besides God that can sustain us when the deep, dark winters of life come our way. And when we lose a loved one to death, when our financial dreams are ruined, when the person that we trusted betrays us, when the hopes for our career are shattered, God alone is a refuge and a strength who will protect and preserve us in the midst of the storm. God's goodness alone can make our hearts truly content. Your contentment, it's one of the seven practices in the way of Jesus that we talk about at Nona. And as a church community, we've defined these seven things that we want to orient our lives around, that we want to practice in our life so that we would walk like Jesus walked. We would live like he lived. And contentment is one of them. And we've defined contentment together this way. Contentment is depending on God's goodness and control in all circumstances. Depending on God's goodness and control in all circumstances. That's exactly what we see in David's prayer, isn't it? You are my Lord. That's God's control. I have no good apart from you. That's God's goodness. You know, some of us came to church this morning feeling like David in verse 1. We're struggling to make it through what we're facing. We're unsure of what the future holds and how we're going to get through that. While others of us are, are blessed to be in a season of relative rest and peace. All of us, regardless of whether life feels like a struggle or not this morning, need to reorient our hearts towards God's goodness as the source of our true contentment. There's a prayer of contentment that I practice in my own life. And I'm not sure where it came from. I tried to figure it out this week so I could cite my sources, but I don't know where it came from. If you know, you can message me and fill me in. Uh, but the prayer goes like this. God, if I have all things but you, I have nothing. If I have nothing but you, I have everything. The prayer goes this way. God, if I have all things but you, I have nothing. If I have nothing but you, I have everything. That prayer has been a huge blessing in my life. In seasons where it felt like I had nothing secure or stable to hold on to, God has used that prayer to lift me up and remind me that I have all that I need in him. And in seasons when life has felt good and I've become distracted by all those things and forgotten what and who truly matters most, God has used that prayer to refocus me, to bring me back to him. And I would encourage you to start to pray this prayer too. Whether life is a struggle and you need to be lifted or life is decently great and you need to be refocused on what matters, my hope is that the Holy Spirit would do something similar in you too so that we would be a people that practice contentment. Next, let's turn to consumption. 
Uh, just a few weeks ago, my family went trick-or-treating in our neighborhood, and my kids were dressed up as characters from the story Peter Pan, and it was amazing. My six-year-old Asher, a.k.a. Peter Pan, uh, he wanted to visit every single home in all of North Lake Park because his goal was to fill our wagon up to the brim with candy. We got way too close to him living out that dream. My three-year-old son, Abraham, a.k.a. Captain Hook, which fit his personality perfectly, he, he had this thing where he'd walk up to a home, and even if, like, the owner of the home you know, had a piece of candy and say, oh, here you go, here's your candy, dude, um, he wouldn't take it. He would walk over to the bucket and pick through it to find the exact right perfect piece of candy that he wanted. And then there was my sweet 20-month-old Lucy, a.k.a. Tinkerbell. This is her first time trick-or-treating, and she realized just a few houses in that she had power. (laughs) She could con anyone into giving her more candy because she's cute. I mean, this girl literally had abuelitas giving her handfuls of candy because she was smiling at them. And even when we go to those houses, you know those houses, the ones that say, one piece of candy per kid. Don't you dare take any more. Uh, she'd walk up to those houses, and she would twirl and smile and babble and coo, and she'd have them giving her more candy too. And, but no matter how much candy someone would give her, she was not content with that. She would stay there and continue to ask for more until me or Ariel would pick her up and take her to the next house where she could swindle more candy away from our neighbors. I think that you and I are a lot like Lucy. We are infatuated with the pursuit of more. This brings us to verses 3 and 4, which say this. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. See, in these verses, David contrasts two types of communities to which we can belong. The first is the saints, the church, those who find their contentment in loving and obeying God. And the second is those who run after little g, false gods. Now, in David's time, those false gods that people worshipped had names like Baal or Molech or Asherah. And the people who followed them literally spilled their own blood or the blood of other people they killed to worship their gods. And they, saw, they sang songs of praise to these false gods. We, too, have our own false gods with modern-day names. Names like power, pleasure, prosperity. These are the gods of our cultural moment. But perhaps the chief false god who stands at the apex of our modern-day pantheon is the god called more. And if more is the chief false god of our time. Our worship of more is called consumption. Consumption is this craving for, this devouring of, this gobbling up of just one more thing or person or pursuit. And we're well acquainted with consumption, aren't we? I mean, this is the word that we use when we talk about consuming content. So when we watch just one or two or three or four, or we fall asleep and we don't know how many we've watched episodes of a show at the end of a hard day that we'd rather just forget. 
It's when we keep scrolling through our social media app of choice in order to avoid that uncomfortable conversation with our parent or with our friend or with our spouse. But consumption, it's not just about what we watch on TV or what we look at on our phones. Consumption is everywhere in our lives. It's when we spend what was supposed to be family time at the office working extra hours. It's when we compulsively buy more things in order to make ourselves feel better. It's when we pour out another drink to silence the thoughts in our head. It's when we lose ourselves by looking at another and another and another appropriate, inappropriate image. It's when we book a vacation that we can't afford to impress people we don't really know, but whom we are constantly trying to compare ourselves to. Now, our problem with consumption is not in the act of consumption itself. Recognize this. God made us to take in, to interact with, to enjoy the world he's created. Power, pleasure, prosperity. These are good gifts from God that he created. But he made them for us to engage with them and use them for his glory, for our good, and for the good of our neighbors. See, our problem with consumption is that we treat good things like ultimate things. Our problem is that we look at people and pursuits and objects to meet our deepest needs and to answer our biggest questions. And when we do that, do you know what we're doing? We're worshiping. We're doing what David says in verse 4. He says, their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. That verse does not seem immediately applicable or recognizable in our modern day world, does it? I mean, we, we don't cut ourselves or kill others in pagan worship like in days of old, but our socially acceptable forms of false worship are no different because they entice us to squander our own lives and to hurt and destroy others in our pursuit of more. Culture's call to more prosperity so often comes at the price of unraveling our physical, our mental, our spiritual health as we spend long hours working. We engage in luxurious distractions and have little real rest. Culture's call to more pleasure so often comes at the price of the exploitation and the degradation of our bodies, especially the bodies of women and girls. Culture's call to more power it comes at the price of treating other people like cogs in a machine that we can manipulate and use to get our own way. And when we answer culture's call to recklessly consume things, people, and pursuits, we are worshiping. And the name that we praise with our lips and our lives in those moments is more. This cultural call to worship more, this is not an ethereal idea. Um, it's actually baked into the structure of how our society functions via the economics of consumerism. There's a book on economics and Christian desire called Being Consumed. And in it, William Cavanaugh writes this about the never-ending cycle of consumerism. He says, There would not be a market for all the goods that are produced in an industrialized economy if consumers were content with the things they bought. 
Consumer desire must be constantly on the move. We must continually desire new things in order for consumption to keep pace with production. The extreme makeover is an ongoing process in the search for novelty, for bigger and better, for new and improved, and for different experiences. The shaving razor with one blade had to be surpassed by the double-bladed razor, which was bested by three blades, then four, and now an absurd five blades on one razor. This is more than just a continuing attempt to make a product better. It is what the General Motors people called the organized creation of dissatisfaction. The consumerist spirit is a restless spirit because desire must be constantly kept on the move. Our consumeristic culture is quite literally built on the fact that our desire for more cannot be satisfied by any object or experience or title that can be bought or sold or achieved on this planet. Consumption keeps us coming back again and again and again, always promising satisfaction but never delivering. And so what about you? You know, verse 5 says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. But let's not pretend that the worship of more is a out there them problem. This is a me problem. This is a you problem. This is an us problem. And so my invitation to you as you think about taking a next step with this is to take an inventory of your consumption this afternoon. I'm going to give you some questions right now, and as I give them to you, you'll begin to process and answer them in your mind. Um, But I invite you to take time this afternoon to answer these questions on your own or in community. Um, And so I want you to take the time to put pen to paper or finger to notes app uh, and, and write these down with me. So here's the questions. Number one, what do you consume? What do you consume? I want you to identify the actual pursuit or object or person. What do you consume? Here's the second question. How do you consume? How do you consume? Name the actions here that you take in your consumption, like looking or buying or drinking or working. What is the action you take? Number three, when do you consume? Notice that there are situations or settings in which you most often are drawn to consume. When do you consume? And lastly, number four, why do you consume? Identify what it is that you're trying to feel or experience in those moments. Why? So what, how, when, and why? Every single one of us in this room is guilty of consumption. I mean, we look to anything and anyone else but God to fulfill the cravings of our hearts, to lift the burdens off of our souls, and to resolve the anxious wanderings of our minds. And so as you're already beginning to process this, and as I hope you do later today, what is that thing for you? Where have you been treating good things that God put in this world like ultimate things? How have you been consuming instead of finding contentment in God? Well, with your answer in mind, we're going to turn to the final part of our big idea and of our message this morning and the sorely needed good news that comes with it. It's this, a thankful heart. A thankful heart chooses contentment instead of consumption. This is what verses 5 and 6 say. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. 
You hold my lot. The lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Remember, David began this psalm by asking for God to be his refuge. He started off crying out for help and strength. And so he says these words, not in the midst of all being well, but in the midst of his difficulty, in the middle of his struggle. And so while David is right here in the gap between what he expects and what he experiences, David's heart is not restless for what he does not have. Instead, he's thankful for what he's already received from God. And we all find ourselves in that place. And the bad news that we've already begun to identify is that we are like those people in verse 4, right? We can't fix, we can't stop our innate inclination to satisfy our desires for more in all the wrong places. We can't rescue ourselves from the natural and the divine consequences of our consumption. And since those things are true, we definitely cannot create a society or a world that works in a just and flourishing way so that everyone's desires are met and no one's dignity is degraded in the process. And so how could we possibly choose contentment? If a thankful heart chooses contentment and yet we find our hearts not thankful and struggling and messed up and broken, what are we supposed to do here? Choosing contentment. It is not a spiritual self-help strategy because it's not something you can do on your own. Choosing contentment, it is a response to what God has already done and what he is currently doing in your life. It's a thankful reaction to the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's this show that uh, I watched as a kid uh, it's called Veggie Tales, and there you go. Some of you know where I'm headed with this, maybe. Uh, my wife and I have been showing our kids the episodes of Veggie Tales that we grew up with as children, uh, and it's been really fun. It's a great way to relive my childhood, to teach my kids about Jesus, and to realize how far digital animation has come since the early 2000s, all at the same time. And there's this line from an episode with Madame Blueberry, who is indeed a French blueberry that we quote really often in our home. It's this phrase that Laura Carrot sings with her family in the midst of their poverty. She sings and she says this, a thankful heart is a happy heart. A thankful heart is a happy heart. Hmm. The good news for us this morning is that we have a reason to be happy. I'm not saying this stuff isn't wrong. I'm not saying this stuff isn't messed up. I'm not saying that things aren't spiraling out of control in your life, because they might be. Regardless of what you're facing, you have a reason to be happy. The gospel message for us this morning is that Jesus can, Jesus has, and Jesus will fix everything that's broken. Jesus died on the cross so that the Lord would be our portion and our cup, satisfying to our souls, instead of the Lord being the one who poured out his cup of wrath on us as the just judgment for our sins. Jesus rose to eternal life. He defeated death and he currently reigns as the king of the universe 
so that our lot, our lives, would be held in God's hands and that we would enjoy the boundary lines of his generosity and grace in our life. And Jesus will return to make all things new and to bring us into the beautiful inheritance that he is preparing for us in the eternity of the new heavens and the new earth with their unbridled joy and satisfaction and peace. We have a reason to be happy. We have a reason to be thankful. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And when our hearts remember this, when we abide in the gospel, when we delight in the gospel, we don't have to be shackled to discontentment, to restlessness, to anxiety. When we trust in the saving work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our past is known, our present is secure, and our future is glorious. Your circumstances will change. There will be ups, there will be downs, there will be deep, dark winters and valleys, but the Father's love for you does not change. What Jesus did for you on the cross does not change. The Holy Spirit's abiding presence with you does not change. And when our hearts are happy in that, when our hearts are thankful for that, we too are able to declare with David, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. God, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. It may not feel like it. It may not look like it, but I know it. And indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. That's what it looks like to choose contentment instead of consumption. You know, next week, we'll look at the rest of these verses in Psalm 16. We'll learn more about what does it look like to walk out this choosing of contentment instead of consumption. But before we move on from here, I want us to, to do what David does in the psalm. I want us to engage with God in the midst of whatever it is that's happening in our lives. And so would you stand with me? This morning, if you've shown up here exhausted, if you've shown up here unsure about how you're going to make it through what you're facing right now, and, and you're in a spot where you, you're asking God to preserve you and to be your refuge, would you open up a hand and a posture of dependence on God like this? If you showed up here this morning and your heart, I used to, is discontent. It's not satisfied. It's not happy. And you want to exchange your striving for the satisfaction of God's presence in God's way, would you open up a hand in a posture of surrender like this? If you stand here and you know you've been consuming and you want to confess that to God, you want to repent of that to God in a broken state, but also in a confident state, knowing that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for your sins and sufficient for your future, would you open up a hand in a posture of receiving like this? We stand together in this room, individuals with unique stories, but also a community with one story, a story of dependence, a story of surrender, a story of receiving from God. And as we stand here together, I'm going to pray a prayer of contentment over you. It's a prayer that was written by an Egyptian man named Clement 
who followed our same Jesus over 1,800 years ago. And as I pray these words, may the Holy Spirit use them to encourage you to walk the well-worn path of the way of Jesus. For the sake of knowing you, Lord, and for the sake of living in union with you, help us be free of wanting what we should not have. The economy of your creation is good, and all things are given as they should be given. Nothing happens without a cause. All-powerful one, we must be in the center of what is yours. And if we are there, we are near to you. So help us to be free of any fear of drawing near to you. Help us to be satisfied with less. And help us to choose as you would choose between what we want and what we really need. We pray these things together in the name of Jesus and we say, 